So, we got too much to cover today for cutesy intros and warm up the uh, audience jokes, okay? So buckle up, because I'm going to just come out swinging. Cool? All right. <laughs> Ring the bell. Ding, ding. Here we go. Um, I don't know if you ever feel this way when you read Acts and you study the life of the, the early church, um, but whenever I study the early church and I come across Acts, I sort of grieve. Um, there are other things I experience, but, but, but I largely lately, I just grieve. When I see what the early church was like and what their commitment was like and how, how the Spirit of God moved through them uh, to, to accomplish the mission that Jesus had for them, I, I read that in Acts and I just grieve for how weak and how ineffective we are in comparison. Listen, y'all, the first Christians... The first believers of Jesus were sold out. They were all in. They were totally committed. They were 100% on point in ways that when I read that makes me wonder if I'm a Christian. (laughs) So as we jump into this series about our church's vision to shape you through our seven habits, there's something important about these first Christians that we need to see that speaks to the importance of what we're trying to accomplish as a church. Track with me for some quick background here. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, that the first believers were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, meaning these first believers were very clear about their calling and their purpose to make disciples, And so they were proclaiming Jesus, and as a result of this, literally thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem came to believe in Jesus as Messiah, which means that the socio-political and the religious powers that be uh, were not happy. Luke tells us they were greatly annoyed, his words, and so the powers that be began to persecute the early Christians. They began to oppress them in all manner of ways that most of us will never remotely see nor experience. They were going so far as to beat them and throw them in jail, threaten their lives. So, so things were less than awesome for the early Christians, uh, but I want you to notice as we jump into this series about the habits, notice what they did. This is what I want you to see here. I haven't been able to get this off my mind for months. Listen to what Peter prays in Acts 4, 29, right on the heels of persecution and oppression. He says this, Lord, now look upon their threats and grant your servants, grant them, the believers and Christians, to continue to speak your word, look at this, with all boldness. Dude has just been beaten, thrown in jail, They've been verbally assaulted as believers, ridiculed by the Jews in Jerusalem. And notice what they pray for. Boldness to meet the demands of the call to proclaim Jesus. Lord, look upon their threats and grant us, your servants, to continue to speak the word with all boldness. With the amount of boldness that it would take to achieve the mission. That's what all boldness means here. Look at the end of Acts 5 after some of the Christian leaders were jailed for preaching. Luke says this in Acts 5, 40 to 42. He says, when they had called in the apostles, meaning when the religious powers that be had called in the apostles, the first Christian leaders, they beat them and they charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and to let them go. So they let them go. And then the the Christians, they left the presence of the council. Look at this. This is what I want you to notice. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. In the face of fierce opposition that 99% of us will never see nor personally experience, the first followers of Jesus rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And then they just kept right on doing what they were called to do. They didn't pray for easier lives. They weren't asking God for less stress. They weren't even asking for the persecution to stop. Did they want those things? Sure, duh. But they prayed for more boldness, for greater faith to carry out their mission. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Friends, there is something fundamentally wrong with the basic day-to-day trajectory of our lives if we never have to pray for anything remotely like boldness to achieve our calling as Christians. There is something wrong. Fundamentally wrong. With the basic day-to-day trajectory of our lives if we never have to pray for something even remotely as close as boldness to achieve our calling. The fact that we rarely have to pray for strength or even much in the way of greater faith to achieve what we perceive as Jesus' stated mission for us to make disciples, that fact speaks to the truth that we have become friends with the world. We have adopted small, piddly, selfish, time-bound, earthly goals that don't require boldness and that don't require the Spirit of God to give us greater faith. Our mission is small. Way too small. William Edwards Deming is the name of a guy who was a modern... Uh, business management guru, uh, right up there with Peter Drucker, for those of you who care about things like that, like me. Anyway, uh, Edwards Deming, uh, W. Edwards Deming said this, and it painfully applies to this problem we're talking about for us as individuals and for the modern church. He said this, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're currently getting. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. Now, I know We're not talking about making widgets or production lines here. We're talking about making disciples, the call to make disciples that Jesus gave us. But we are called as a church and as individuals and as couples and as families to create environments that produce producers, that make disciples. So I think Deming's point actually fits. And while this may be hard to hear, please hear what I'm about to say to the extent to which it applies in your own life. When you look at how you spend your life's resources from day to day, what does it say about the fruit you get? In other words, what results are you getting and what do they say about how you've designed the systems of your life? If your goal is to achieve comfort and ease and worldly security or to avoid pain, maybe to avoid doing the hard thing of actually taking responsibility to steward well what you've been given, maybe your goal is to simply raise kids who are well prepared for a job and who stay out of jail. Great. 
Then you will design your day-to-day stuff, your day-to-day habits to produce those goals, which means you're not going to need to pray for boldness, for greater faith to achieve a mission that requires the Spirit of God. Friends, looking over the landscape of the lives of most Christians, which produce little kingdom fruit in the life of another person, it is clear that we have designed the day-to-day systems of our lives to produce fruit different than the fruit Jesus called us to produce. Are we preaching yet? Here's the thing, friends. If you, if you really follow Jesus and your goal is to have a deep and abiding relationship with him, then that will affect your day-to-day habits, right? If your goal as a follower of Jesus is to do what he's called you to do, which is to steward all of life for the sake of his goodness and glory instead of your own, then your day-to-day habits will reflect an intentional plan to make that happen. But the the truth of the matter, friends, is that 90-plus percent of people who call themselves Christians for their whole lives won't produce kingdom fruit in the life of another before they die. That's not right. So, with all that context and background in mind, we have an audacious goal here at First Christian Church. Before we get into the engaging worship part, just to set the tone for this series, we have a ridiculous, audacious goal at First Christian Church. We have a goal of calling you, as Jesus did to the first disciples, to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commission to make disciples and the Great Commandment to love God and people. We have an audacious goal of calling into question whether your daily habits produce those things. So our goal is to equip you to be shaped day by day into a self-feeding, fruitful disciple maker whose joy is found in seeing God's glory made known through you instead of yours. You see, we believe the lie that we know how to achieve joy by ourselves. We're wrong. It won't work. Let's be clear at the vision series here, at the outset of a vision series, about our goal. Our vision as a church is to raise up an army of Christ followers who are equipped to do what God has called them to do from day to day, self-feeding disciple makers who have a joy that they find in seeing other people experience the glory of God because they're making disciples. And so today we're going to offer you the first of seven in um, this way for you through these seven habits to make sure the systems of your life are designed to get the results (laughs) that they should for a follower of Jesus. The first one's engage in worship. And this is going to be a little less practical than the rest of them. A lot of the others have programs to to, to connect with and things that we'll tell you about more um, starting next week. But this one, you're already doing, so uh, check. Engage in worship is the beginning step for you in a journey toward the kind of boldness and strength and health and readiness for battle that are required to do what God's called you to do. You mean, meaning, meaning being here week after week is part of that, that habit of being shaped into who God called you to be. <laughs> which is an all-in, sold-out, 
on-point follower of Jesus who, listen carefully, who makes a difference in the world as a producer instead of being uh, what is typical of Christians, an empty and fake fan of Jesus who sits there like a consumeristic bump on a log letting the world make a difference in you. We preach him yet? This is why every, every Sunday we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I want this to be in our heads and in our hearts. Paul speaking, it says this, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. This isn't play. We are gathered Sunday after Sunday to discipline ourselves after the image of God so that we would be the real deal. There are plenty of fakes out there. We're here to call you to great things that require great faith and a great God. So let's dive into habit one, engage in worship. Someone who's engaged in worship will experience three things that we see here in Isaiah 6. We're going to jump into verse 1, Isaiah 6. Three things that someone who is engaging in worship week after week will experience just like Isaiah does here starting with verse 1, chapter 6. First thing is God's presence. This is the first thing he experiences, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I meaning Isaiah the prophet, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. That's one part of the description. And then the other is, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Someone who is regularly engaged in worship will experience God's sovereign presence, his kingly lordship, uh, creator, uh, and power over the universe presence. So it says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, meaning a king on the earth was dead, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. This is a picture of Almighty God that's holding court here. In contrast to King Uzziah, who had just died, uh, this is a king, God is a king that never dies. And look, it says that the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. Now, back in the day uh, when a king would defeat another king in battle, they would cut off a part of the, the train of the robe and they would take that and they would add it to their own uh, train. So uh, a successful king would have a big long train with the trains of those who came before. As sort of this reminder of, hello, <laughs> who's the real king here, right? So it's, it's a picture here that God is, is, is almighty in a way that means the train of his robe has everyone on it and it fills the whole temple. So God's robe is so long, it fills the temple as a sign of his sovereignty, his power, his might, and his kingly glory. Those for God are beyond all other kings. That's a way of saying that there in Isaiah 6. One. Look at verse 2. This is more about the presence of God, his sovereignty. It says, above him stood the seraphim. We'll come back to tell you what that is in just a second. Each one of these seraphim had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Could have used six, only uses two. The other four are covering up things. Seraphim is just a word that means fiery. So these are fiery angelic beings. And we aren't told how many there are. Could be two, could be two million. What is noticeable and important here is that they cover their faces and their feet as an act of submission and humility to God Almighty. He is sovereign. They're in his presence. They submit to him by covering their face and feet. 
which is to say that even superhuman creatures must humble themselves before an almighty God. What on earth makes us think we're somehow different than that? It continues, verse 3, And one called to another, the seraphim calling to each other, and said this. This is so good. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's not just holy. (laughs) He's holy, holy, holy. Three times holy. No other threefold adjective appears in all of the New Testament. It's reserved for God alone. And it's repeated to emphasize his infinite perfections and goodness that make him holy. He's infinitely holy. And notice that the seraphim here are sort of straining at the leash of language. It's like they don't have words to describe it. There aren't enough right words to add up to his holiness. So they sort of make a shortcut of three times holy to say he's infinitely perfect. He's altogether good. He is not like us, but only bigger and and nicer. He's an entirely different category of greatness all by himself, three times holy such that the glory of the reality of who he is fills the whole earth. Occasionally my glory fills like this on a good day, for a good moment. This is a God who is perfect. He is righteous. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is altogether good that is so categorically beyond us that to compare him with us is to denigrate the absolute beauty and awesome power of his absolutely perfect character and nature. And don't for a second think that he can't and he shouldn't crush you like a bug because he could and it would be deserved. This is a God who is to be feared as much as he is to be befriended. And he's not just some warm and fuzzy, nice grandpa with a beard. He's God. And he's glorious. And he's amazing beyond our best descriptions of him. Woe to us if we do not take him more seriously because he deserves everything. And we are giving him piddly afterthoughts of our lives. Our worship of him should involve engaging with his majesty and beauty and wonder and holiness and not the lethargy and apathy because we are weak and passive. If it's scared, cool. If it's apathetic and lethargic, Look at God. See him for who he is. Realize that his presence means you need to understand the whole earth is full of his glory. It just continues with the description like that in verse 4. It says, The foundations of the thresholds of the temple, they shook at the voice of him who called, And the house was filled with smoke. God's voice 
shakes the foundations of the temple. It's so big and so mighty. And the temple is filled with smoke, just like what happened on Mount Sinai when Moses first received God's law. This is meant to to call us back to that picture on Mount Sinai when Moses first received God's law. Uh, Mount Sinai became a place of fear and dread for the people of God uh, because it was there that they first had a real palpable sense for them of their personal sin. You see, God is always more than we bargained for. And so when we engage in worship of him and we experience his presence, the second thing that happens in worship that we see here in the text as a result of the experience of God's presence is that we encounter our own sin. We encounter our own sin. That's what happens when you see God rightly in in worship. Look at Isaiah 6, verse 5. This is Isaiah the prophet. After having experienced the presence of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He's overcome with the sense of his personal sin. But also see, it goes beyond that. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Not only is he aware of his own sin here, uh, but he's aware of the brokenness of the world around him. Don't, don't you know what he means there? Like, like you look around and you think, man, just everything is broken and doesn't work right and and sin is everywhere. And, and, and not only is it our own, it's the sin of people around us that affects us, that we see all around us. We're tainted by the world around us. We're, we're influenced by it. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's like you can't get away from it. Which is to see the world rightly. After you experience the presence of God. It's an encounter with God in worship that brings a realization of sin. It's as simple as that. It's an encounter with God in worship that brings a realization of our sin. If you're not encountering your own sin in worship, you should ask yourself some questions. I don't know exactly what those questions are for you, but if you're not, if you're not encountering your sin in worship, you should ask yourself some questions. third thing that we see here uh, that we experience in worship is God's grace. We go from the presence of God to an encounter with sin to God's grace. And it comes straight from the text here. Look at what happens here in verses 6 and 7. This is God making us able to be in his presence because because of his grace, doing what we cannot do for ourselves. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah speaking, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar is where a sacrifice happens. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Not by the seraphim, but by Jesus. This is a foretaste of the grace of God that comes to us in Jesus. The kind of coal that burns away sin. This, friends, is the high point of our worship. Don't let worship just stay in, I'm a sinner. Reclaim the truth week after week and be shaped by the truth that a coal that comes from the altar on which Jesus was sacrificed is brought to you and burns away sin and gives you grace you can't have. You don't go get it. It's given to you. It's brought to you. It's the grace of God in the presence of Christ who's made it possible for us to be in the presence of God because of his atonement for sin. 
for us. This is God coming into our presence when we could not come into his presence without him making a way for us. This and the coals from the fire is the Holy Spirit, which is a fire uh, touching us, forgiving us, bringing us into the full presence of God. Friends, those regularly engaged in worship will statistically be those who are more shaped into godliness for the sake of a mission of joy because they experience God's presence, they encounter their sin, and they fully understand God's grace. You see, we just talked about the gospel, (laughs) an experience of the presence of God that brings us into an encounter with sin that's met with God's grace. And this regular practice of engaging in worship, we like to call a soul-shaping habit. It's a soul-shaping habit. I want to end by reading um, a couple things. One is from a favorite book of mine called Unceasing Worship um, by a man named Harold Best. Uh, It talks about how we are shaped by the things we worship and adore. This is great. It says this. At this very moment, and for as long as this world endures... Everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit or God through Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby, by that thing. And is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or evil which is to say we are shaped into the goodness of God or the the evil of sin and Satan as we adore, worship the things to which we give ourselves. And it keeps on by saying no one is exempt from this and no one can wish to be. We are every one of us unceasing worshipers and we will remain so forever because eternity is an infinite extrapolation of one of two conditions meaning choices in the here and now a surrender to the sinfulness of sin unto infinite loss or the commitment of personal righteousness unto infinite gain this is the central fact of our existence we are worshipers the question is what are we worshiping that is the central fact of our existence And it drives every other fact. Within it lies the story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, the final loss. This is why we say (laughs) engage in worship is meant to be a soul-shaping habit. Because our regular corporate worship, it resets our hearts and our minds. It makes us aware that we've been called to steward all of life for God's purposes. It's a reminder that everything we have, everything we are, is made by God, meant for his purposes, and our joy is found in giving into that vision. So, so don't reduce worship to some occasional or, or passive practice uh, that depends on the weather that happens if you've got nothing better to do. Engage in this. Take advantage of the opportunity. Schedule for it. Plan for it. Engage in it. Intentionally incorporate it into your weekly routine as if you have a purpose that is given to you by God. Because listen, friends, in the here and now, we are preparing for the missions God's given us 
of loving God and neighbor in order to make disciples. Our joy is wrapped up in God's vision for us, not in our own. This is important. Our souls are shaped by this. Hebrews 10, 24, and 5 say this pretty clearly. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. When we, when we meet regularly to name the truth and the grace of God with our singing, with prayer, uh, with the way that we study the scriptures together, that is a process of being shaped into who God made us to be, into men and women and families and marriages, into a church of people who know and love Almighty God. So don't be a stranger, don't be a consumer, be a contributor. Engage in worship so that you will experience God's presence, you will encounter your sin, and you will understand the depth of God's grace. Because that's what's available here. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, we are forever grateful that you've accounted for us in ways that are infinitely better than our plans for ourselves. Disabuse us of the deception that we know better what joy looks like without you. Break us of a vision for our lives that sees worship of self, that sees ultimately worship of self as a way to have the joy you offer us. Lord, we are so grateful that you give us a relationship with you forever in the person of your son, Jesus, who lived the perfect, sinless, righteous before you life that we could not, who died on the cross as a sacrifice that worked to bring us into relationship with you and who was raised from the dead, who opened our graves so that we could have new life. Father, make that our story. Make of us people who engage in worship so that our souls would be shaped by this practice of submitting to the truth that you alone are sovereign and holy beyond our best descriptions. That being in your presence is a privilege we have because even though we encounter our sin, you give us your grace. Form us after these amazing truths, Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.